Hi everyone, Pastor Joe here, and it's an honor and a privilege for me to introduce to you the person that will be bringing us God's Word today. Kyle Gustafson has been uh, a leader in CBC Youth since 2011, and he and his wife Amy, when they were married in 2012, started leading a high school life group in their home and have done so ever since. Um, they are not only ministry partners, but close friends of mine, and you are in for a treat today. You probably best know Kyle and Amy's names uh, because they lead our missional efforts in Ghana, West Africa. One of our core passions here at CBC is to equip leadership, meaning that we want to make sure that everyone is able to grow and develop the skills, gifts, and talents that God has given them for the advancement of the kingdom. And teaching is one of Kyle's gifts. And so we have watched him grow and develop in the student ministry uh, arena over the last many years. And now is the time to kind of give him the reins in the main service with you all. And so it's been an honor to watch him study this text um, and pull out application from it. And so you're in for um, a great message today. So welcome with me, Kyle Gustafson. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, in, case, in case anybody's curious, it is as awkward as you would expect sitting there listening to a video of somebody introducing you. Um, as Pastor Joe said, my name is Kyle, and I am not on staff here at CBC. I am a pharmacist. I work at a hospital over by the airport, and then I'm a professor of medicine and a pharmacy at a school near Akron. Uh, I have called CVC my church home for a little over eight years now. Uh, in counting uh, with my wife, Amy, she is in like the 27, 28-year range at CVC, so she's maybe a little bit more uh, seasoned here. Uh, today, we are starting a new mini-series, three weeks, where we are looking at life after Christmas. And actually what we're doing is we are picking up the Gospel of Luke exactly where we left off on the Christmas Eve service. We stopped at Luke 2, verse 20, and today is Luke 2, verse 21. Now, uh, in this series, our goal is to see where we leave off in Scripture and what the Scripture that follows Jesus' birth can tell us about our lives and how we're supposed to maybe interact with that a little bit. I don't know if it's this way for you, but for me, the first week after Christmas always feels a little bit odd. We have spent such a long time anticipating Christmas. We have decorations that go up starting in July. Uh, we have our trees. We wrap gifts. We open Advent calendars. Uh, we prepare our guest rooms. We make food. We eat food. We clean up, and then we make more food so we can eat again. Like everything that we do is aimed at making sure that this Christmas is an event to remember. But maybe your Christmas isn't quite that rosy. Maybe this year was more about just trying to get through the season because this is the first Christmas without somebody that you love. Or maybe this was a year that you're just trying to get through without killing or being killed by your family. Uh, maybe this was a, a holiday season that you were just trying to make ends meet. And my thing froze, wonderful. So now we are five days 
after Christmas. And poof, all of that planning, all of that effort, all of that everything is gone. In, in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's a word that's hevel, it's Hebrew, and it means like a vapor in the wind. It's, it's something that's meaningless. It's not really there. And, and Christmas, the second it's gone, it's just like, it's gone. Where did it go? Where did all of the effort, where did all of the energy that we spent go? New Year's is right around the corner. We need to make more plans. We need to decide who we're going to celebrate with and where we're going to go. We need to decide what resolutions we're going to make. And if we're being honest with ourselves, which resolutions we're going to fail to keep, how are we going to make next year different than this year? Today, we're going to be picking up in Luke, and this is a passage that in some ways begins to address this post-Christmas blues. Like, we often overlook this passage because we want to get through it to see Jesus's ministry. We want to get when he turns 30 and starts teaching. We want to see the miracles and, and the lessons. But so often we find ourselves rushing through this part of the story but in doing so, we sacrifice, we, uh, we miss this really beautiful opportunity to better understand God and his love in relationship with us. The, the passage that we're going to talk about in Luke contains, to, to some extent, a microcosm, a, a summary of all of Scripture. We're going to be focusing on three different parts of, of this story today. We're going to be looking at what it means to be waiting for Christ, encountering Christ, and then ultimately sharing Christ. Now, at Cuyahoga Valley, one of our uh, key values is that of self-feeder. And my favorite part of high school ministry, the favorite thing that we do here, is we do something called fall retreat. And we all pile in a bus, we go down to Hocking Hills, we get these cabins, and we get all of the students together. And our goal in that weekend is to encourage and challenge our students to learn how to read scripture for themselves. And so we just got back from, I mean, two or three weeks ago, got back from our fall retreat this year. And this year, the topic was Old Testament narrative, uh, a style of literature where it's telling the story. Uh, and we asked our students to go back to stories that they're really familiar with from their childhood, David and Goliath and Jonah and the whale, and start to reread them with a new set of filters, like with a new understanding of how to get the most out of those scriptures. And we, we left our students with two key filters that we wanted them to read scripture with. The first filter is that no matter what story you're reading, God is the main character. We may be introduced to other people, there are people we can learn from and that we can emulate, but if we read large sections of scripture and forget that God is the main character, we're going to miss a lot of what God has in store for us and his revealing of himself to us. The second one is going to be that in, in narrative, the author has control over what they write. They can choose to include and exclude whatever it is that they want. And in doing so, the things that they say are important, and the things that they don't say might be just as important. And so uh, as we have come back from fall retreat, this is something I've been thinking on a lot. However, the good news for us today is that this passage in Luke is narrative. 
And so we get to read this passage with those same two filters to help us better understand God and better understand ourselves. So we're going to be picking up in Luke 2, verse 21, and we're going to be reading through 40. So if you'll read along with me here. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this was a righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation for the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there is a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Let us pray. Dear Lord, I thank you that you inspired Luke to to document this interaction with Simeon and with Anna. Lord, I thank you that the words here are reflective of your love for us and of your character. I pray that as as I speak and as we read these words, that you would use them to do a new work in us, that we would begin to see uh, our lives as an encounter with you, the most loving God. Lord, I pray that we would use this scripture, that we would use these words that Luke wrote to be a mirror to our heart, that we would have a better understanding of, of who we are and a better understanding of how you love and value us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Now, we only get one story about Jesus from when he's born to when he's 12. And of all the things that Luke could have wrote about, he wrote about this, which tells us that this is a really important piece of scripture. This is a really important thing for Luke. And if it's supposed to be important for Luke, it should probably be important to us as well. Before we dig into some specifics in this passage, I really do want to make sure that we understand the cultural context of this passage. This passage is laden with 
language and imagery that's important to understanding it. Uh, in Israel, when a child was born, particularly a firstborn male, there were three things that the family had to do. The first was the child needed to be circumcised, and that happened on the eighth day. The second thing they needed to do is they needed to go to the temple in Jerusalem and do the purification ceremony for the mother. This happened at about day 30, somewhere between day 30 and 40. And then, once they purified the mother, they had to dedicate the child to God at the temple. And so when we read the beginning of this passage, what we are seeing is Mary and Joseph's obedience to the law of the Lord, to, to what they're being asked to do. Now, there is some other context here is that they don't live in Jerusalem. They live in Nazareth. And being like any good millennial, I hopped on Google Maps and Nazareth to the temple is 65 miles. Maybe not all that far for us, but probably a full three-day journey on foot for Mary and Joseph. And so you can see they have, they have quite the ways that they need to go in order to get to Jerusalem. Now, as we dig under the surface here, there's so much stuff that we can just pull out of this text, and we don't have time for it all. But I do want to give you one example of how what's included in narrative is really important. Uh, if we flip to the book of Exodus, we'll find that the appropriate sacrifice for a firstborn child to be dedicated to the Lord is the blood of a lamb. And yet, when we read this passage, we, tell, we are told that they gave two young turtle doves or two young pigeons. That was only an acceptable sacrifice from the lowest of the low socioeconomic class. Luke has told us by referencing Old Testament scripture that, that Mary and Joseph and Jesus were very impoverished, that they weren't wealthy, they weren't well-to-do. Like, we know more about Jesus's childhood from that sentence. We also feel like as you read through this, what struck me even the first time I read it is that this passage feels like Old Testament. It doesn't feel like the gospel. It doesn't feel like something in the New Testament. It feels very Old Testament. Luke, in his entire book, mentions the law nine times. We just read five of them. And so, again, we're left with this belief that Luke is including what he wants us to know about this passage. And so the inclusion of this Old Testament feel and the mention of the law is incredibly important to Luke. Likewise, as we meet Simeon and as we meet Anna, the introductions and the titles that were given for each one of them are meant to convey Old Testament. And they are full of this imagery or this language that we don't tend to see in the New Testament. Once again, Luke has control over all of this when he's writing. And so it tells us that the Old Testament component of this is incredibly important to our understanding of the bigger passage. Also, using these filters that we talked about in narrative, it'd be very easy to forget that God is the main character in this passage. The main character isn't Simeon. The main character isn't Anna. It isn't Mary. It isn't Joseph. It is God. And this passage includes a lot of things, but the overarching story of this passage is that God loves us and that God saves. We can look at Simeon's words, we can look at Anna's words, we can pull application from them, but if we lose sight of the overarching story of God here, then we have missed Luke's point. And so the first of the things that I really wanted to zoom in on is waiting on Christ. 
The beginning of this passage gives us a very clear look into what it meant to be a faithful follower of God in Jesus's time. Mary and Joseph have had to make at least one, if not two, multi-day trips from Nazareth into Jerusalem in order to carry out the law and in an act of obedience. If we think about Mary's position, just 30 days ago, she gave birth to a child in a manger. There was a host of angels declaring from the heavens that this is salvation. He was, she was swamped by shepherds and by visitors and by people declaring praise. And 30 days later, they're taking a three-day trip into Jerusalem to do this sacrifice, to do that thing, to follow the Old Testament law. Boom, right back into everyday life. This ceremony, that tradition, those sacrifices. In the adage of the old TV commercials, life comes at you fast. Does anybody else kind of relate to this with Christmas or post-Christmas? Christmas was just five days ago, and in the Gustafson house, we are already back to our everyday routine. Amy and I both went back to work Wednesday morning. Uh, we are now trying to figure out each and every day who is making dinner and what we're going to have. We're trying to figure out what we're going to teach in our small group next week. About the only thing that hasn't changed in our house are the decorations. And if I'm being really honest, those are still going to be up at Easter anyways. <laughs> so we really aren't any different from Mary and Joseph, where we have this, this big excitement, we have this incredible experience, and then right back into our everyday life like nothing has ever happened. But then, then we meet Simeon. And we get introduced to Simeon in verse 26. And this is the only place in scripture where we meet Simeon. And all we know about him is what Luke tells us in these few these few passages. We know that he is righteous and devout. We know that he is waiting on the consolation of Israel. That is the salvation of Israel. And we know that he has the Holy Spirit upon him. Luke also tells us that Simeon has been told by the Holy Spirit that he is not going to die until he has seen the Lord's Christ. Again, going back to this Old Testament feel, Waiting for the consolation of Israel is a key concept that, that overarches the entire Old Testament. When we take these two introductions, when we take Mary and Joseph and their obedience to the law, and when we take Simeon and his waiting for the consolation, for the salvation of Israel, we have a really, really beautiful picture of what Old Testament faith looks like. In the Old Testament, faith was being obedient to the law and waiting on God to fulfill his promises, his promises of salvation. So let's put this into context because we can talk about waiting, right? Like everybody, we'll get to that in a second, but we can talk about waiting in our own life. This is being written to Israel in a time where there had been prophet declaring that a Messiah was coming, and a prophet was declaring that a Messiah was coming, and a prophet that was declaring that a Messiah was coming, and a prophet that was declaring a Messiah was coming, and then silence. For 400 years, there was nothing. Israel has waited for 400 years without clear direction from their God. They're just waiting. 
If we wanna take that a step farther, at this point in the biblical narrative, we are 42 generations removed from Abraham in the promise that God was going to deliver all nations through Abraham's offspring. So we've been waiting for 400 years. We've been waiting for 42 generations. We have been waiting since the fall of man for our salvation. Uh, David in Psalms 27 puts it this way. He says, I believe that I shall look on the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Micah, uh, a prophet to Israel while they were exiled in Babylon, writes from captivity, but as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. Isaiah in Isaiah 40 says it this way, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. I think that this character trait, this waiting, is probably the best description of what faithfulness looks like in the Old Testament. We're waiting on God to fulfill his promises and waiting on him to deliver Israel for their sin. He's, we're waiting on God's salvation to come. And don't forget that Simeon in this scenario is also waiting. He's waiting for Israel as a whole, but he's waiting because the Lord told him that he would not die until he saw the Christ. And so he waits. I don't know where each of you are at in life right now. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what's happening. But I can tell you, it's a reasonable guess that all of us in this room are waiting for something. Now, we could be waiting on God to meet a very real and very tangible need in our life. Maybe it's financial, maybe it's a job, maybe it's health. Or we're waiting on him to draw to himself a loved one. Maybe we're waiting on him to finally show up so that we can believe, that to prove himself to us so that we can, we can finally believe that he is who he says he is. Maybe we're waiting on him to show us the answers to life's really hard questions. What college do I go to? What job do I take? What do I do with my life? What is my purpose? Maybe we're waiting on God to, to, to do that. Maybe our waiting on God is our internal pleading. Us crying out, that, crying out to God like, when will you give me the one thing that my heart desires? When will you end my pain? I want you to know as we go through this, that, that this waiting, that there is hope. And as we struggle through this waiting, there is hope. And it comes from the very next section. See, in verse 27, everything begins to change. Simeon, being led by the Spirit, is drawn into the temple to encounter Christ. The language here seems to indicate that Simeon did not spend all of his time in the temple, but was rather prompted by the Spirit to go into the temple to see this child. Imagine this scenario, you're standing in the lobby of CVC and some old man walks in the front door, grabs the first kid that he sees, starts dancing around and singing about how beautiful and how much of a blessing it is that this child is there. 
kind of weird, right? And yet, this is what Simeon does. He barges into the temple, he grabs the Christ child, and he begins to sing. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. My waiting is over. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to the people, Israel. This is not a story of an old man blessing a child. This is the story of a faithful believer who has finally encountered the object of his waiting. He's encountered the Christ. He's encountered his salvation. God in the flesh, the very thing his entire life has been building to. Simeon displays as he sings here an incredibly clear understanding of the purpose of Christ. Jesus isn't a worldly king. He's not a military commander. Jesus is going to change Israel's entire worldview. He's going to be a servant. He's going to be humble. He's going to be killed on a cross. Like everything about what the Israelites expect is different. Their world is turned upside down. Christ is the embodiment of God's love in the fulfillment of more than 2,000 years of prophecy. Simeon understands in this context that the salvation is not just for Israel, that it is for all people. It's not God's chosen people of Israel, but the Gentiles as well. In his blessing, we see that Christ is to be a light of revelation or a light of understanding to the Gentiles and a source of glory for the people of Israel. It is not an either or, it is an and both. This should be especially good news to us, to most of us in this room. I'm a Gentile, I'm not Jewish. I would have guessed that most of you in this room would trace your lineage back to the Gentiles of this story. Jesus' birth is the light of our revelation. Simeon wasn't just celebrating the consolation of Israel, which is something he, he had been waiting for. He is praising God for the salvation of all people. When he takes Jesus into his arms, he's praising God that I have understanding. And he's praising God for my salvation. When, when Simeon takes this child, he's praising God for your salvation. Your salvation is here. In this moment, Luke is able to very clearly communicate to his readers at the time and to us 2,000 years later, the essential truth of Christmas. That is that Christmas represents God's promise to redeem his creation and to restore our relationship with him. You see, in Christ, God provided the only solution for the problem of sin. He provided himself. This baby will go on to live a life that I am incapable of living. And this child on the cross will die the death that I deserve as consequence for my sin. This is the ultimate sacrifice. If we were to use the language from the beginning of the passage, this is the final sacrifice. By believing in Christ, we are able to have a restored relationship with God, with Christ 
birth, our salvation is here. See, that's why missions is so important to Amy and I. With the coming of Christ, we are not saved by our sacrifices. We're not saved by our ethnicity or our people group. We are not saved by our obedience. We're not saved by our works. We are saved by a missionary God who desires salvation for all peoples. Peoples in Ghana, in Indonesia, in Mexico, in the United States, in Cleveland, in Broadview Heights. Our encounter with Christ, our encounter with our own salvation should change us. And it should change us in a way that Anna demonstrates here very, very clearly. It should change us because we should share Christ. So Anna is introduced to us in verse 36. And we know more about her than we know about uh, Simeon because Luke tells us more. Uh, he tells us that she is from one of the lost tribes of northern Israel. She's from the tribe of Asher. She, we don't get a lot of Asher love in the Bible, and here is an example of somebody who's from the tribe of Asher. We also know that she is very old and that she is very devout. She worships and she fasts in the temple night and day in praising the Lord. When we look at this passage in context, her and Simeon represent the old guard of Israel, the devout of the devout, the faithful. Notice in this scenario, though, and notice in this wording that her righteousness is coming from her actions in the temple, right? Her, she's described as righteous, but it's about her praying and fasting and being in the temple. Like her righteousness is coming out of these things. Like Simeon, she has this encounter with Christ where she interacts with the newborn Christ and like Simeon, she is spurred into action. In verse 38, Luke says it this way, coming up on that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Jesus coming to the temple was not an event for her in which when he left, she went back to the same thing that she was doing. When Jesus came to the temple, she shifted her focus to God in praise. And out of that, out of the overflowing of her, her thankfulness and praise to God, she went out of the temple to tell everybody who was waiting on their salvation the good news. Salvation is here. Luke doesn't tell us what she said but it's pretty reasonable to guess what it is that Anna did. Anna recognized that God had provided his salvation and fulfilled his promises. And then she recognized that this fulfillment is what everybody else in the world was waiting for. And so she stepped out of the temple and she told them what they needed to hear. And in doing so, she became one of the very first examples we have of a Christian missionary encountering Christ, encountering our own salvation should change us in a way that pulls us to other people who desperately want to hear the gospel, who want to hear that God saves. So we have talked a lot about waiting today. It's a word that I've used over and over and over again. But here's the little secret about waiting. Waiting requires 
action. Say that again. Waiting requires action. It's kind of a weird thought, but follow me on this. Imagine you are in the doctor's office. You're sitting in the waiting room. It has been 40 minutes. You're in that uncomfortable, like, half-plastic chair, and the only thing that you can find to read is a copy of a cross-stitching magazine from 2000. Like, you don't want to be there, right? And then the nurse comes to the door, and she says, hey, Kyle, we're ready for you. I set down the magazine, I stand up, and I walk to my appointment, right? So my waiting is turned into action. Maybe another example, a more personal one. Uh, my wife is six months pregnant. Uh, we are expecting our first child, a boy, in the beginning of April. Uh, there's a couple people in the room that may have realized in this moment what I have already realized, and that is the beginning of April is the Masters Golf Tournament. <laughs> so the scenario here is very plausible. Imagine I'm sitting on the couch, I'm watching the golf tournament, and my wife comes into the room, she says, Kyle, it's time. I have two options. <laughs> Maybe, honey, I'd like, to see if Pil I'd like to see if Phil makes this putt. My wife might kill me. <laughs> or I say to myself, this is the thing I have been waiting for. So I grab my bag, we get in the car, and we go to the hospital because I'm having a baby boy. My waiting necessitates action. We can't wait for something, and then when the moment comes, go back to whatever it is that we were doing originally. See, with Christmas, the encounter of Christmas, we are no longer waiting on our salvation. Our salvation is here. Christmas then changes the very essence of our faith. In the Old Testament, the component of faith was waiting on God to fulfill his promise. But after Christ's birth, it becomes about following God, responding to our encounter with the Christ. As Christ says in John 12, 26, whoever serves me must follow me. With, with all this talk about our waiting being over, I want to, to very clearly address an important theological concept. We are waiting on salvation is over. But waiting on God is still an important part of our faith. We will have to wait for God to answer our prayers. And we're going to have to wait for God when we seek his direction and we seek his, his intervention in our life. But the most important waiting, the waiting on our salvation, is over. Likewise, in this new world where things are kind of a little bit different when it's about action, waiting on God doesn't preclude our action. I would rather say that, that we are to be following God even in the midst of our waiting. I might take that a step farther and say, we should be waiting on God, especially in the midst of our waiting. But our waiting is different because with salvation, we have hope. Salvation is assured to us. Our salvation is here. You see, Christmas was never about 
an event. It was about an encounter. It is an encounter with a God who loves you and sent his son into this world on our behalf. Life after Christmas is about how encountering Christ changes the focus of our lives from waiting on God to following Jesus. Life after Christmas is about how encountering Christ changes the focus of our lives from waiting on God to following Jesus. I want to give you some time now to talk with God. We're going to have some music playing, some worship songs, but we have a couple things that we need to wrestle with today. One of the questions that should be sitting on our hearts is, how will you respond to encountering Christ? If Christmas isn't an event, if it's an encounter with a God who loves us and saves us, how are we to respond in action? And the second question is, what is it that you are holding on to? What is it that you are waiting for that's preventing you from doing that? Now, I'm not going to tell you what God's telling you to do. I want you to find that for yourself. But on this response card, there are a couple options. Uh, The first of these options is that today I'm placing my faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe this Christmas season is the first time you've ever thought that God loved you and that he saved you. Maybe this is the moment where you go to God and say, I want this to be an encounter in my life, not an event. You can select that. We'd, we'd love to talk with you more. We, we won't hunt you down on your doorstep, but we do want to give you tools and abilities to, to grow in this new relationship. Maybe you've done this in your heart, but you've never declared out loud that Christ is my Savior. And if that's you, maybe baptism is the next step. Maybe it's God is moving you into action to publicly declare your faith in Christ. Maybe you've known this Christ thing for so long and you've been doing the steps all along and you just feel the need to grow closer to God that he would change your heart. We have life groups here at Cuyahoga Valley that can help you do that. We have Group Connect next week and the week after. We would love to get you in touch with a caring community who would help you grow and embrace what God has in store for you. There's also a line here that says other and it's blank. And I guess you could put anything that you want in that line, but I'm going to tell you what the right answer is. The right answer is out of an outflowing of my joy of my salvation, that maybe this is the year that you step forward and serve on a missions trip. It could be Indonesia. It could be somewhere in the United States like Appalachia. Maybe it's just down the street to care on the square or someplace in downtown Cleveland. But maybe this is the moment where it stops being an event and it starts changing your heart for other people around you. So I don't know what God's going to tell you to do, but in this moment, I would like you to seek him. Will you pray? Dear Lord, we thank you for the beautiful picture of Simeon and Anna and how their interactions with the Christ child display to us your great love and your great power and your great salvation. Work in our hearts. Turn us towards you that we might farther grow and that we would stop sitting and waiting and that we would start following you and what you've placed in our life. Help us to stand confidently that your son came to this earth. He lived a sinless life. 
He died on the cross for our sins and that he rose again. Help us to stand confidently that your salvation is here.